evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, the largest single-screen drive-in in the United States. We're certainly glad you could be with us this evening. And don't forget the concession stand is open with all kinds of great things to eat and drink. 89.3 Mahoning Drive-In Radio. It's your old friend Virgil back once again for a very, very special installment of the ongoing podcast we've been having so much fun doing. And today I'm joined with my co-host Mark. Say hello. Hello. And a new co-host into the mix. Our resident Disney expert for our uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode. Welcome the one, the only Mike Kenny. Thank you guys for having me. This is great. Obviously, I'm a longtime Mahoning attendee, so I'm so happy to be kind of welcomed into the threshold behind the scenes for this. But yeah, I am a, I am a huge lover of Disney, probably obsessively so. So yeah, I'm thrilled and psyched to kind of uh, guide our viewers uh, through the rabbit hole of Disney history, if you will. <laughs> And it's good to mention that, Mike, for you guys that are going to make this a regular visit for our uh, Sunday Discount Disney events, Mike is going to be hosting those. So mm -hmm. you'll be a regular on the air, giving our Patreon folks videos, things like that. So we're sure. super excited to have you in the mix. Thank you, man. But it's not all about you today, as you know, <laughs> as excited as we are. How crazy is it? that our first outing with Disney, right out of the Disney vaults, and we get the creator of one of the most iconic characters, in my opinion, on the planet. So please welcome the historic, the genius, <laughs> Gary K. Wolf, creator of Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Hey, thank you. And you forgot the still alive, you know, which is <laughs> the best of all. <laughs> well, you have such a, a storied history with this character, and this is going to be such a great discussion because when we started this podcast, that's what it was about. Giving people um, who really appreciate the love of classic film and 35 millimeter film and those experiences they had at the drive-in to be able to get like a deeper dive into things. So I think they're really going to appreciate it. But as you know, the Mahoning is the only drive-in in the country that is showing 35 millimeter film exclusively. The only one who has access to the 35 millimeter Disney vaults. What is your experience with drive-ins and the drive-in culture? Well, I, I, I have a long, a long history with drive-ins and I'm going to broaden the term drive-in to kind of include outdoor movies in general, all right? Because some of my earlier experiences were not drive-ins with a car, but outdoor movies. My, my first was, I come from a small farm town in Illinois called Earlville, 1,400 people. Um, and there was uh, a place out in the country called the Trading Post where they sold uh, fishing equipment, hunting equipment, animal traps, <laughs> whatever. And every Thursday night in the summertime, they would put up a big screen and people would come in and sit down and they'd show a movie. And it would, it was generally, because this was the uh, probably early to mid fifties, it was probably a, you know, a forties or thirties movie. And of course there, there really was no television back then. So if you, you know, if you wanted to see a movie, you could go to the movie theater downtown or you could come to the trading post and see one for free. So everybody would go and we, it was a family deal. We would, we would go, we would sit on the lawn, we would watch the movie. Um, they would, they would have an intermission. You would go into the snack bar and buy some popcorn and 
maybe a shotgun, I don't know, because, <laughs> you know, that's what they sold there. And it kind of gave me an appreciation for watching movies outdoors. There was something kind of magical about it, that, that here you were outdoors and you could look up and you could see the stars and then there was a movie. And, and that was pretty magical. It was different from the experience that I used to have going to a theater where you were surrounded by people and you could hear people breathing and you were in an enclosed environment. This was a wide open environment. I thought this was swell. So later years in Earlville, the, the, the movie theater, which was called the Lyric Theater, uh, closed, but the fellow who ran it, Chuck Dias, uh, built a drive-in, uh, the Dias 34 drive-in. And it's Dias 34 drive-in because it's on Route 34. Um, it, it is still running from what I understand. It is still Amazing. running. Amazing. Yeah, it, it started in probably 1954, 55, and it is still running. Um, I have in my, uh, in my archives the, the poster that they printed up when they showed my movie. Come on. Roger <laughs> Rabbit at the Dias 34 drive-in in my hometown. Uh, what so a dream. That, so that was, that was my next experience. And of course, I was, uh, I was high school age then, high school, college. It was, it, was the perfect, it was the perfect thing to do at night because, you know, in the summertime, we all had to work to, to get tuition money to go back to college. And I did a lot of farm work, uh, hoeing beans and baling hay and detasseling corn. And it was, it was hot, dirty work. So you'd come home, you'd grab a shower, you'd get in the car, you'd go to the drive-in. And the drive-in ran seven days a week. Uh, as I recall, the shows were uh, a show on Sunday, Monday, and then a different show on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then a different show on Friday, Saturday. And then it started all over again because that was the schedule that they had for the movie theater, regular movie theater. So you would generally go to the Sunday show and watch the movie. And then you'd go back to the Monday show and just kind of hang out with your friends, right? And then you'd go to the, the Tuesday show and see the movie. And then Wednesday, Thursday, you'd go to the drive-in and kind of hang out with your friends. Now, uh, you know, I've heard the drive-in referred to as the Passion Pit. Well, in Earlville, uh, through a weird law of genetics, the, um, the boys outnumbered the girls by 35 to 1. So, <laughs> so good luck getting a date if you're the president of the Chickers Club. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and incidentally, flashing forward, uh, Jessica Rabbit, my my proudest creation. Jessica Rabbit is the woman that I developed as the fantasy woman that I would have dated in high school if I had ever been able to get a date or even been able to talk to a girl. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of hung out with your friends at the, at the drive-in. And, and I, I went every day during the summer uh, when I was in high school and later when I was in college, I went every day. Uh, yeah. Then my, my next experience with an outdoor movie was in Vietnam. Um, I, was a, I was an air commando in Vietnam very early in the war. And, um, you know, there was really not a lot of uh, a lot of activities to do uh, at night, except to, you know, wait for the next mortar attack or whatever. Uh, so they they put up a screen again and a projector, and they would show movies. 
at night on this on this outdoor screen and projector. And we would sit and watch these movies on wooden benches. And this was all well and good, except they started this program during the rainy season. So you would sit there wearing your steel helmet with a with a poncho all around you, and then the poncho kind of up over your steel helmet to act as a kind of a rain shield. And then you would look up and under and the, the water would be coming down in sheets in front of you, but you were still watching this movie. And, you know, it was the same as it used to be at the Royal Trading Post. You were watching a movie outdoors in the elements and it was, it was great. It was just a unique experience. I still remember some of the movies I saw. I saw a movie called The Great TNT Show, which... Uh, oh, that was a, a sequel to The Tammy Show, T-A-M-I, if I recall. It, 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 you know, it might have been The Tammy Show that I saw, but it was one or the other. But it was my give me my first glimpse of a Tina Turner, mm-hmm. uh, something you know I never forgot. And <laughs> uh, I also uh, David Soul, I think the guy who was uh, on that spy thing, um, and I can't remember the Napoleon Solo and, and oh uh, David McCallum from yeah, Man from Uncle. That's him, yeah. Man from Uncle. Yeah, he came out and led the orchestra because he couldn't he couldn't do much else. Uh, <laughs> but I re- I remember that, and then my next experience with a drive-in was uh, when I moved to San Francisco and we were living in San Mateo and there was the Bayshore drive-in. It was right across the, right across the Bayshore from the condo where we were living. And we used to go over there all the time and watch them. Oh, one more thing about Vietnam. All right. They didn't really have all the right lenses. So we saw a movie, How to Steal a Million with uh, Peter O'Toole and Audrey. Oh, yeah. And I, it was a CinemaScope movie, but they didn't have the right lenses. So instead of being this, it was this. Yep. <laughs> Skinny Audrey vision, Hepburn as I call that. was really thin, you know. People <laughs> were just really thin. So we went to uh, San Francisco, and I went to the Bayshore Drive, and we used to go. We used to go quite often. They used to have double features, and the double features were always some Disney movie, uh, a cartoon, uh, animated feature, something, and and that was for the kids. And then you would put the kids to sleep in the back of the station wagon. And then, uh, you know, they'd show some R-rated movie. And um, so we, we don't have any kids, but we have we have lots of uh, godchildren. And uh, so we took one of our, our goddaughter, who was, I think, six years old. And uh, the feature was, I can't remember, some Disney thing. And, you know, she sat there watching it in the front seat with us. And then you know, they, that one was done. So we said, okay, you got to go to bed. We made up her bed in the back of the station wagon. She went to sleep. And the second movie was some, you know, R-rated movie. This was being the 70s. I mean, a lot of full frontal nudity, <laughs> oh, yeah. on-screen sex. And, and so, you know, we're sitting there watching it. And, uh, there, there's this big sex scene. And all of a sudden, we hear this little voice between us saying, what are they doing? <laughs> and we look, and here she is standing between the seats. She'd been watching the whole movie. So <laughs> it's those experiences. She'll yeah, never forget yeah, it. <laughs> the, drive-in, the drive-in experience. Uh, so I have a long history with drive-ins. Beautiful yeah. thread. I mean, nice, nicely through. And that's that's the beauty of the drive-in culture is, you know, it's Americana as far as the culture of it all. But your experience sounds similar to ours in that the drive-in was always there. It was always kind of a piece um, and something that certainly now we use as inspiration in our creativity. 
Do you feel like that kind of sparked your creativity, which I guess can kind of lead into when and how did you start writing? When did that become your your niche? Yeah, well, my creativity was kind of sparked by, once again, being from a small farm town in Illinois. You know, 1,400 people in that farm town. My father ran the pool hall there and my mother was a cook in the school cafeteria. And my first experience with creativity, I was probably second grade when our teacher gave us a a picture that we were supposed to take home and color. And the whole purpose of the exercise was to stay inside the lines. That That was the whole purpose of the exercise. So I took that picture home that night and got out my crayons. And I, I mean, I was great at staying inside the lines. I mean, nobody could stay inside the lines. <laughs> so I looked at that picture and it was it was a typical farm scene. You know, it was a farmhouse, a barn, uh, a wooden fence, uh, a meadow, and, and one cow off in the middle of the meadow. So I colored the farmhouse yellow, which was the color farmhouses were around Earlville. I colored the barn red. I colored the grass green. The, the fence brown and I look at that cow and I'm thinking to myself, you know, my mother had always told me that when people are alone, they get sad, they get lonely and they get blue. I said, hmm, you know, it works for people, it must work for cows. So I color the cow blue. So the next day I take the picture, I pass it, give it and turn it into my teacher. The day after that, she passes them all back, all except for mine. And she calls me up to the front of the room. She's Gary. She says, you come up here. She says, you turn around, you face the class. And I'm thinking to myself, oh man, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody. And she holds that picture up over my head. And she says, class, she says, look at this stupid, stupid picture. She says, everybody knows cows are brown, cows are black, cows are white, cows are sometimes brown, black, and white, all three. She says, never, never, never are cows blue. Blue cows do not exist. Gary, don't ever do anything like that again. She called my mother. And my mother had to come to school. I mean, it was a big deal for my mother. And, and, and the teacher told her, I think there might be something wrong with Gary. I, th- I think he might need some psychological help. So, so that, that night, my, my mother and my father sat me down in the living room. And they said to me, you know, Gary, why did you color that cow blue? And, and I, I said, well, my, you know, it, it was it was you, really. I mean, it was you. You told me people get sad, they get lonely, they get blue. I figured cows get sad, lonely, they get blue. Uh, I colored the cow blue. So my, my mother said, all right, she said, Dad and I have to talk about this. You go outside and play for a while. So I went outside, I was playing it. You know, I didn't expect this was going to have a good ending because you, you, you gotta you, you gotta know my mother and my father uh, were not well-educated people. My my father had to drop out of school in the third grade to go to work because of the depression. Uh-huh. My mother had to drop out of school in the eighth grade to go to work because of the depression. So these were not what you would call upscale urban liberals. I mean, <laughs> these were hard scrabble working people. And I didn't think this was this was going to work out very well for me. Uh, so my mother called me back in and she sat me down. She said, Gary, she said, your dad and I talked about what you said. And we both decided that the next time you want to color a cow blue, you go ahead and color a cow blue. And that was that was the first 
validation of my creativity. I mean, I've colored a lot of cows blues since then. You know, my mother called the teacher and she said, you know, next time he wants to do something like that, you let him and don't criticize him for it. And this was a hard thing for her to do because, you know, teachers were on a much higher level. So a couple of weeks later, that same teacher gave us another assignment. We had to write what we did on our summer vacation. And so all the other kids were writing about how they went to Madison, Wisconsin, or Wisconsin Dells, or, you know, they went down to the Arrowville Lake or whatever they did. And I wrote about how I went out in my backyard and I, I built a rocket ship out of tin cans and aluminum foil and I flew to the moon. And, and the next day she laid it out on my desk and says, well, that was an interesting trip. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. And to show you how, uh, how things change as you progress up the ladder. Uh, when I went to Illinois, I went to University of Illinois and um, I wanted to be an electrical engineer because I didn't know what there was to do in the world. Uh, we didn't have job, uh, you know, uh, vocational counseling in Earlville. So uh, there was a big electrical plant where I used to work some summers. And the big deal people in that electrical plant were the electrical engineers. They were the high status guys. And I said, well, oh, boy, that looks pretty good. So I went to the University of Illinois as an electrical engineer. And I, I mean, it took me maybe heartbeat to realize that a <laughs> I, hated, I hated this with a passion and b i hated it with a double passion and I, you know i it, i i i had labs constantly I, I walked around with a slide rule strapped to my to my waist like an old-time gunslinger i had a t-squared and a jackal box full of drawing tools I had to carry with me everywhere. I never got to eat lunch because classes went all day. And uh, the only class I really enjoyed was English. And Illinois in those days, so different from today. If you graduated from any accredited Illinois high school, the University of Illinois had to take you. Had to take you. They could flunk you out after the first semester or two, but they had to take you. So, um, the flunk out course was English. They would they would flunk you in English because most people coming to the college couldn't write or couldn't read or whatever. Right. And um, so I got this assignment from my English teacher and it was to write a book report on the Odyssey. And I think, my God, if I don't have enough to do drawing right angles with my T-squared and calculating the prime numbers of you know, I, I got to read this friggin' book too. So, you know, I'd already read the book, but I read it again anyway. And uh, instead of writing a book report, I rewrote the Odyssey as a piece of noir detective fiction. Amazing. And, yeah. And I handed it into the teacher. And next day she called me up, not, not in front of the class, but afterwards she called me up and she gave me back my paper and she marked it F. She's like, I can't, I can't, I got a fill you on this because you didn't do the assignment, but she said, you're a brilliant writer and I'm going to proficiency you out of this class. You don't have to take it. And I, that's going to give you more time to devote to your engineering studies, which I know you need. So she proficiencyed me out of English and I didn't have to take the class. I got an A in it. And, uh, you know, it took me another, I don't know, 
it took me the whole semester before I finally realized this is not for me. And I dropped out and I thought, geez, you know, I could have been like one semester ahead if I just started with English in the first place. So uh, <laughs> all worked out. It's amazing those experiences, especially when you're growing up or through your college years, that can really inform. Sometimes it only takes that that little moment of acceptance or that little bit of budge of encouragement. I'm somebody who grew up on a stage and I felt that same thing, you know, that there was moments of encouragement that kind of gave me that courage to, to jump in, you yeah. know? Well, the other thing that made a difference for me, uh, and again, I get back to my mother who was not educated, but she had a lot of worldly wisdom. She had a lot of common sense. And uh, my mother told me, she said, look, if you want to get out of this town, you don't want to wind up living here the rest of your life and running your father's pool hall. So the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read, 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 and that will get you out of here. So, you know, I, I read, I, I read everything I get my hands on. I mean, what do kids read? I read comic books. You know, I read Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Uncle Scrooge, whatever you got. And I would I would go down to Andy Giles Smoke Shop, the Peace Street Smoke Shop, and I would read all the comics I could before he'd throw me out. And then <laughs> I'd buy whatever I could afford with my allowance, uh, take them home, and then I'd trade them with my friends in school. And, uh, I, you know, I read them all. And I so my love growing up was comic books and, of course, cartoons, which I saw in the movies, and comic strips, which uh, was oddly the, the one thing that, my dad loved comic strips. He wasn't a big reader, but he loved comic strips. And he would read me the comic strips every day in the newspaper. So I grew up loving those things. The other thing that I read was something that my dad read. And of course, again, he wasn't an educated guy and he wasn't a big reader, but he read something that was, in those days they called true crime magazines. And I don't think there's, a, there's an equivalent thing, but these were magazines that, as the title suggests, they featured true crimes. They would have a reporter and a photographer go to the scene of a crime. And these crimes were generally murders. And the, the reporter would then write up all the gory details and the photographer would take pictures. And if you ever saw a movie called Road to Perdition, mm -hmm. yeah. Tom Hanks, uh, Jude Law played one of these photographers. And so I, I grew up reading those because they were all over the house. My dad read them and I, and, and my mom, good woman that she was, never once said, hey, don't read those, they'll rot your brain. <laughs> So, uh, you know, luckily, luckily I graduated from graphic photos of murders to uh, noir mysteries by better writers, uh, you know, Dashiell Hammett, um, uh, you know, uh, Mickey Spillane. Um, uh, and I, I got to love noir mysteries. So my, my two loves were noir mysteries and comic books, comic strips, and cartoons so uh, let's talk about that kapow you know <laughs> yeah there you go so uh you know in later years i became a writer um my wife encouraged me to to write uh, i wrote poems to her uh, which i i'm embarrassed to to show anybody today but uh, <laughs> she said you know you should really you should really write something because you, I, was, I was big into science fiction and she said you should you should write something so i wrote a science fiction short story and uh, it took me a year. Uh, it, it got published in fantasy and science fiction. Uh, it took me a year to write it. It was 50 pages long. 
they paid me $50 for it, dollar a page. And um, I was as happy with that sale as I have been with any sale I've ever made in my life. Because legitimized. I, it legitimized me. Yeah, I, I was I was a real professional writer and I had actually made money from something that I had written. So I decided that since I was a real professional writer now, I needed to start dressing like one. Well, this was... <laughs> <laughs> Got to look the part. Here we go. Here we go. So this is San Francisco in the 70s, right? So I go down to Haight-Ashbury and the uh, Goff Street uh, and I, I got myself a tweed jacket with uh, leather patches on the sleeves. Uh, I, got my, I got myself a black turtleneck and I got myself a custom made pair of leather pants uh, from a company called East West Musical Instrument Company who for whatever reason made leather pants. And I can still wear them, I'm proud to say, except <laughs> that this was the seventies. And so they were bell bottoms. So the the legs on them are like, you know, like this wide. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, from there, I started writing short stories and uh, sold them all. I, I sold all the short stories I, I ever wrote. I never had a reach. Yeah. I started to realize that for every, if I, if instead of writing 12 short stories, I just wrote a novel, that would be better. So I wrote my first novel. I, I had an agent uh, who wouldn't represent my short stories, but said he would happily represent me for novels. Uh, so I wrote a novel. He sent it to Doubleday and Doubleday bought it uh, and gave me a contract for three more. Whatever I wanted to write, they would publish. Amazing. So, yeah. So uh, the first one was Killer Bowl, which uh, is still my most popular mm -hmm. science fiction novel. Uh, the second one was A Generation Removed. The third one was The Resurrectionist. And so I, was, I came to the fourth one. This was, this was the fourth novel in my four novel deal. And I wanted to... I wanted to expand the envelope. I wanted to do something that nobody ever done before. And I wanted to finally incorporate the loves of my life, who are fiction, comic books, comic strips, and cartoons. Oh, yeah. So I'm trying to think it, you know, not easy to come up with a concept that will incorporate all that stuff. So I, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons, right? Uh, for research, I told my wife, you know, just for research, I'm watching this. And, uh, uh, I... I was fascinated not with the cartoons, which were you know really simple and not very funny, but with the commercials because there were cartoon characters, Tony the Tiger and the Tricks Rabbit, Snap Crackle and Pop, Captain Crunch, who were talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. <laughs> That's normal. <laughs> and I said to myself, you know, wow, what what a great concept, a great concept for a novel. What if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? So I spent the next year researching cartoons, comic strips, to see what kind of conventions went on in cartoons and comic strips and comic books that would be really odd if they were to appear in, in, or in real life. And one of them was uh, word balloons. In, in my first novel, Censored Roger Rabbit, the characters are characters from comic books and comic strips and they talk in word balloons so you don't really talk to them you they put up a word balloon and you read them and if they turn around the word balloon turns around too and so you got to either learn to read in reverse or you got to go around the other side if a cartoon character shoots somebody with a cartoon gun it produces a bang balloon and the, the bang balloon is kind of brittle and it falls on the ground and you, you can take that bang balloon 
and then compare it with another bang balloon. And if the bang balloons match, it's the same gun, right? <laughs> when the cartoon character plays the piano, the notes kind of go off like this and people will collect those notes and cut them into eight by 12 sheets. And that's where sheet music comes from. So, you know, I had a whole lot of fun with, with that convention. And I, I, I wrote the book to really appeal to a reader's imagination, really, really appeal to the, you know, the reader has to be invested in, has to, has to imagine what's going on. And, you know, I finished the book and, it, you know, <laughs> it was brilliant. And then, it, it, you was know. Brilliant. it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? So I sent it to Doubleday. I said, hey, here you go. Here's my book, fourth book and my formal contract. And they rejected it. Wow. First, wow. first reject I've ever had in my life. First wow. they rejected Who's Sons of Roger Rabbit. So I called my editor and I said, Sharon, I said, this is the best thing I've ever written. I mean, I, I will never, maybe never write anything as good as this again. Why did you reject this? And she said, well, she said, I agree. She said, I think this was hilarious. It was funny. It was, it was, it was so intelligent and it was, but it was so different from anything that you've ever written so different from anything that anybody's ever written that I had to send it to the marketing department and the marketing department are the ones who rejected it. And I wow. called the marketing department and I said, I, I head of the marketing department, I said, Chuck, why did you reject my book? He said, oh, we all laughed. We thought it was really funny. He said, but you know, there's no category for that book on a bookstore shelves. It's not a regular novel. It's not a really science fiction. It's not a children's book. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's not a, a traditional fantasy. We can't sell it. And I said, all right, Chuck, what would you do if somebody gave you Alice in Wonderland or Gulliver's Travels or The Wizard of Oz? What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute, he says, I couldn't sell those either. So <laughs> I, I, I went back to my agent. I said, Bill, you know, what are we going to do here? I said, if I can't, if I can't publish this, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to write. This is what I love. Yeah. And he said, Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. He said, well, we'll find it a home. It's a brilliant book. We'll find it a home. So he started sending it out to other publishers. Sometimes he would send it to different editors at the same publisher because they have different viewpoints and uh, different likes and dislikes. And along the way, it accumulated 110 rechecks was rejected wow. 110 times, always for, the wow. same, always for the same reason. Editors loved it. And, uh, and they would send it to the marketing department. The marketing department would say, can't sell this book. No category for this book on the bookstore shelves. So um, it was funny because in those days, when you got rejects, they, they didn't, you didn't get them by email. I mean, they came in the mail and they were, they were physical and they came in on an envelope. And my wife used to call me going out to the mailbox every afternoon, the daily disappointments, because I would go out and there'd be, you know, two, three, four, sometimes five rejects. Um, so finally, 111th submission, it went to a uh, young woman named uh, Rebecca Martin at uh, St. Martin's Press. And Rebecca had just published a big bestseller. She had edited a big bestseller for St. Martin's Press. And so the president of the company gave her a vanity project. He said, all right, next book you publish, you can publish whatever you want, you know, whatever you want. And just that moment, Roger Rabbit comes across her desk. So she read it. And of course, like every editor before, she loved it. And 
so she went to the president of the company and said, here you go. Here's the book I want to publish. She said, I can publish anything. Here you go. And he said, okay, I'm going to take it home. I'll read it tonight. Get back to you tomorrow. So he took it home, read it, came back to her in the morning. And he said, Rebecca, I told you you could publish anything you want, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. <laughs> of course. And Rebecca stood up to the plate and said, look, you publish that or I quit. Wow. Yeah. And uh, they published it, albeit in very, very small quantities. I think 5,000 copies, which is you know, next to nothing. And you know, people ask me, if you had your life to live over again, would you do anything different? And, and, you know, if I had a time machine, there is one thing that I would do different. I would go back in time and I would buy up all 5,000 of those copies because they sold for two ninety nine. And if you look on eBay today, those books are going for like three fifty, four hundred bucks. Wow. So, <laughs> really, really, really wealthy man. Quite a jump. Yeah, <laughs> that I wasn't aware of. That it went through, uh, you know, that that much to get it actually to the public. What I had always heard was the legendary story that when it got to the public, it didn't take long for the mouse to sniff you out. Oh no! Tell, tell us about it. It, it wasn't it, uh, again that that. It, that wasn't exactly the way it happened. It hadn't been published yet. So I, I sold this in 1980 and it came out in 1981 because that's how long it took for a book to get published to buddy. Right. And in that interim, mid 1980, book hadn't come out yet. I get this call at home, right on my home phone. And there's a guy on the other end says, hi, is this Gary K. Wolf? He said, yes, it is. He says, oh, so this is Roy Disney from the Disney company. He said, yeah, right. <laughs> Roy Disney calling me at home on my home phone. One of my friends having me on, you know. He says, no, 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 it's really Roy Disney. He said, I read your book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And I'm wondering if you'd be interested in having the Disney company make it into a movie. And I said, yeah, right. I said, the book hasn't come out yet. And, and he told me uh, that someone in St. Martin's, and I never found out who, Although I, I really tried because I wanted to, I wanted to kiss her or him full on the lips because somebody at St. Martin's sent the manuscript to Disney and said, hey, we're going to publish this book. We think you'd like it. And it turned out that, yes, they did like it very much. And it worked its way up to, uh, to Roy Disney eventually. And Roy Disney said, yeah, we need this. We need to make this movie. And Disney in 1980 needed a Roger Rabbit movie because Disney in 1980 um, was making movies like Flubber and The Nutty Professor and uh, The Black Hole and The Black Cauldron, which disappeared down the black hole. Yeah. Um, you know, they were making the second half of double features and there were no more double features. So they were in danger of becoming obsolescent. Uh, they'd been offered E.T. and they turned it down. Uh, they'd been offered Star Wars and they turned it down. Uh, they needed something that would reestablish their credentials as a preeminent film company. And they all saw Roy Disney and everybody at Disney saw Roger Rabbit as that movie. Uh, plus, the, another thing, if you've ever gone to Disneyland, Disney World, or if you've ever walked down any city street in, the, in America or the world, you'll see that a large number of people wear t-shirts and jackets and whatever with Disney characters on them. 
Disney makes a lot of money selling merchandise with their characters on it. And in 1980, their characters were getting a little stale. They had Mickey, but they really couldn't fool around with him because he was like the corporate spokesmouse. They had Donald, you know, they could fool around with Donald, but uh, nobody could understand what he said. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he was kind of useless. Uh, so they, they really, they wanted Roger, they wanted Baby Herman, they wanted Jessica, they wanted the new characters. So they offered me more money than I'd ever made for all the writing I'd done up to that point on everything else. Uh, I'm not going to turn them down. Although I really didn't think that, hey, I didn't think Disney had the clout to do it. I didn't think that they had the technology and that they could do it the way I saw it in my head. And um, I didn't, really didn't think that the book was filmable because, you know, cartoon characters, live actors, um, a, a lot of the conventions I used, I just didn't think that this book was filmable. But if they wanted to pay me to try, I'm fine with that. So they started working on it in mid-1980. And um, for the first couple of years, they pretty well proved me right. They just didn't have what it took to pull it together. Uh, and a lot of it wasn't their fault. They, the technology wasn't there yet. Uh, was right the technology, there. the technology had to catch up with the with the process. And in 1981 or 82, I can't remember, probably 81, they came to me. Roy Disney came to me and said, "Look, you know, we're not having any luck doing this as a live action animated movie. Uh, what would you say if we did it instead with the cartoon characters in costume like they are in Disney Man? <laughs> I'm going to get costume oh. characters and I'm going to get the Disney stable of actors. So I'm going to have Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant. I'm going to have Haley Mills as Jessica, Dean Jones as the rabbit, and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman. And I said, uh, it's <laughs> very much the Disney of yesteryear. <laughs> yeah. I said, don't, yes. you think, don't you think that dilutes the premise just a little bit? And they agreed. So they, they, they kept trying and they had no success. Then finally, in 1985, a couple of things happened. Roy Disney was eased out by Michael Eisner. And Michael Eisner came in and brought with him Jeff Katzenberg as his head of animation and live action movies. So there, he had one guy who was in charge of both, which is different than it is today. So they immediately came in and they threw out all the projects that Disney had under development because... That's what got the previous regime in trouble. So you get rid of all those, you bring in your own, except for Roger Rabbit. They kept Roger Rabbit. They said, we've got to do this movie. This is the movie we have to do. So they did something that nobody had ever done before at Disney. They brought in an outside producer. And that was a little known guy. You probably have never heard of him, but he was a little known guy named Steven Spielberg. And Who's that guy? Who? <laughs> Sounds like you'll have a career one day. <laughs> show you. Show you what a difference Steve Spielberg makes in Hollywood. Uh, in 1983, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, look, we're making this live action animated movie and uh, cartoon characters living in a real world. We'd like to have Bugs Bunny come out, just do a little cameo, say, what's up, Doc? And then walk off, be on screen for 20 seconds. How about it? And Warner Bros. looked at Roy Disney and said, get lost. You know, there's no way. There's no way that Bugs Bunny is ever going to be in a Walt Disney movie. It's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. So in 1985 or six, 
Steve Spielberg walks over to Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. Can we have Bugs Bunny, a cameo in this movie, I'm making for Disney live action animation. And Warner Brothers says, of course, of course, take him, take him. What about, what about, what about, don't you want him too? What about Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner? And how about, how about, uh, uh, Got Daffy. <laughs> you know, how, how about the Tweety Bird and, and Sylvester? You, you know, and Yosemite Sam, don't forget Yosemite Sam. Take them all, take them all. So <laughs> Steve Spielberg got them all for a ridiculous rate. I mean, to, next to nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only, uh, the only requirement, Bugs Bunny had a contract. Bugs Bunny was a superstar. So he had a contract. And in Bugs Bunny's contract, it specified that he was a co-equal superstar to Mickey Mouse. So you could not have Mickey Mouse in a scene without Bugs. They had to both be in every scene together. All right. And they had to have the exact same amount of dialogue, same number of words of dialogue. So next time you watch that movie on the big screen, uh, check it out. And uh, <laughs> you'll see every time Mickey, there's Bugs. And every word Mickey says, Bugs says too. Um, one interesting sidelight to that, the Warner Brothers people wanted the Warner Brothers characters to be the 1980 Warner Brothers characters. And the Disney animators wanted them to be the 1945 Warner Brothers characters. Classic. Right. Yeah. Classic. So the, the animators, the animators, one animator in particular, did two versions of every scene with Warner Brothers characters. In one, it's the 1980 Warner Brothers character. Wow. And he took, Come on. he took that scene and showed it to Warner Brothers. And the other scene was the 1945 version of Warner Brothers characters. They took that scene and put it in the movie. And the wow. first time the Warner Brothers knew about this was when they saw the finished film. Wow. And Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers went ballistic. That animator got fired. But Warner Brothers wound up being ecstatic over it because the movie was such a huge success that all of a sudden they were able to sell toys and dolls and t-shirts and whatever with the 40s characters as well as the 80s characters. So they want right. to be happy about it. Um, so anyway. Um, Shined know, a light on that classic era, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Steve Spielberg uh, brought in Bob Zemeckis uh, to direct. And Bob had been offered this project back in the early 80s. Roy Disney had offered it to him, but he really didn't think that Disney had what it took to carry it off. So he passed and you know, went on to direct some little known stuff like Back to the Future and Forrest Gump and, you know, stuff I've never <laughs> heard of. Uh, but, he, he, you know, now that now that Steve was on board, he came back. And both he, both Bob Zemeckis and Steve had read my book back when it first came out, actually. And they both thought that it would make a great movie. So Bob Zemeckis came in and, um, he, you know, they, they kept me involved in it because both Steve and Bob C valued my creativity because the whole the concept wouldn't have existed without me. So they, they brought me in and I, I, was, I was in a lot of story sessions. I, sometimes I'd find myself in a room with 35 of the most talented, creative people I've ever met in my life. They're all throwing out ideas on how to make my book funnier and better. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, why weren't you guys there? When I was writing this thing at my kitchen table at four in the morning every day, you know, and I had a Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, people also ask me, aren't you upset that they changed the story? Because they didn't change the story. And I, I'm not because the movie's a movie and the book's a book. 
and you know you, you watch the movie the movie is there and there's uh you know there's not a whole lot of imagination required you, it is what it is you see it and the book requires that you invest your own time and your own imagination into it they're two separate entities and the, the book is the best book i know how to write and the movie is the, you know the best movie that i think uh, i'm ever capable of doing so I'm, I'm not upset about it the important things are still there uh, a world where cartoon characters exist with humans mm-hmm. uh the characters roger rabbit of course jessica baby herman eddie valiant who i named after my father is a tribute for buying all those graphic crime novels <laughs> um, and you know as we started making the movie they got uh bob z had done romancing the stone with kathleen turner and thought she would be the ideal voice of jessica and of course she was uh-huh. but the problem uh-huh. was that when it came time to record her singing the song uh she was pregnant and whether she just didn't have breath control or whether whether she uh she really couldn't sing i don't know but she couldn't she couldn't sing the song so steve spielberg was there with amy irving who was his wife at the time and amy was sitting in the sound stage listening to this and so steve said hey amy you know you're singing yentl why don't you give it a whack and i said steve you know nobody's going to believe that jessica has one voice for singing and one voice for speaking he said nobody will even pull so you know so amy irving recorded the singing voice and in fact nobody nobody seemed to notice uh there is a there is a long there is a long distance there's a long lag between when you hear her singing and when you hear her speak but kathleen turner i mean it, it, this they were this was done before the movie even started really filming seriously and nobody at the time knew if this was movie was going to be any good i mean it was just going to be a blockbuster or was it going to be howard the duck um you know nobody even right. really knew if it was going to be an adult movie, a children's movie who was going to go see this movie nobody knew so kathleen decided that she would take the role the the, the path that james Earl jones took in star wars where he did the voice of darth vader uncredited so that if the if the movie turned out to be a, a bomb you know he would disappear into the woodwork and nobody would ever know and if it turned out to be a you know a smash hit which of course it was then he would get the uh you know he would get the credit and he would take the credit so she did the same thing she's not credited but amy irving is if you stick around for the credits which you know last as long <laughs> as some earlier movies uh you will see amy irving credited as the singing voice of jesse rabbit so we then had to design the characters and steve wanted a master animator to do that somebody that could oversee everything and uh, everybody wanted chuck jones i mean i wanted chuck jones the developer of you know books bunny and every character i've ever loved uh but he was he was old at the time he was in his 60s and everybody knew that this was going to be a tremendous tremendous workload uh, and it was one of the few times when i've ever seen anybody in hollywood have any compassion they were worried that if they if they gave him this job which he wanted if they gave him the job that the workload might kill him and i mean usually now it's hey you know die at your desk you know work for you until you bury you at your desk so chuck jones was was not a not a possibility uh then they were talking about ralph bakshi uh, who did the x-rated fritz the cat wow oh, uh, yeah. yeah and i always wondered what he would have done with jessica um <laughs> steven thought he was kind of a goon So they finally settled on uh, an American expat living in Britain in England, Richard Williams, and Dick was a perfect choice. He won an Academy Award for animating the Pink Panther. 
and just had exactly the right temperament and sensibility for it. So Dick sat down with me to visualize what the characters look like. And of course, the first one we did uh, was Roger. Uh, in my book, Roger is a brown rabbit. Dick felt that a white rabbit would show up better on the screen. It would just pop more. A brown rabbit tend to fade right. in the background. So we made him white instead of brown. But uh, he still had the polka dot bow tie and the red coveralls. That's what we were talking about is, yeah. is, is the character that was developed, were you able to kind of inform it along oh, yeah. the way as far as the oh, look yeah. Yeah, of absolutely. it? And does it really kind of play to the image you had in your head when you wrote oh, the yeah. book? Absolutely. Besides yeah, absolutely. the color? Jessica, especially. Jessica, I based on a character called Red Hot Riding Hood, which was a Tex Avery character from the 40s, 50s. And uh, if you watch the, the animated cartoon Red Hot Riding Hood, which you can see on YouTube, or Swing Shift Cinderella, uh, you'll see that she mm -hmm. does the same dance in both cartoons. They, they saved the uh, same animation. But it's basically the same dance that Jessica does in the Ink and Paint Club. And uh, her, her waist is very narrow. She wears a red dress. She's a redhead, you know, amply endowed. And Dick Williams, I, I told Dick Williams that, you know, I kind of based her on Red Hot Writing. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll update Red Hot Writing. And I said, yeah, and, you know, bring in Veronica Lake, the actress from the 40s who had the over-the-eye hairdo, uh, little Rita yeah. Hayworth, little Anna Turner glamour girl kind of stuff and he, he said yeah I'm looking for that and uh so he 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 developed her and he he made her proportions unnatural you know she has unnatural proportions and he did it so that everybody would know especially other animators and other studios that they hadn't rotoscoped her and I, I don't know I'll give you a quick tutorial on rotoscoping perfectly acceptable animation technique where you film some a person or a couple of people doing something and then you just draw over the 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 uh the film uh, and uh, i think in cinderella when cinderella and the prince are dancing those are real people dancing and they've been yeah. rotoscoped uh perfectly acceptable technique nothing wrong with it but dick williams wanted to people to know that this was not rotoscoped that this was all drawn so he gave her these uh, impossible proportions and um yeah. Baby Herman uh, was exactly as I saw him. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, kind of adult babies in the comic books and the cartoons that I watched from the 30s and 40s. A lot of this was right. not. So, um, you know, the hardest character for the animators to draw was Jessica because um, they were used to drawing ducks and geese and mice and farm animals, barnyard beasts. Sure. Just couldn't seem to get a handle on a real woman. And that's just a real woman, but like the essence of woman. So Bob Z went down, with the, the movie was filmed in, in London, mostly. And Steve Spielberg liked the food in London, you know, go figure. No, no, <laughs> maybe he did like the food here, but it was filmed in London because they had a three level high soundstage at Elstree Studios. And they did not have anything similar in the United States. They do now, but they didn't then. And so the top level soundstage was the set. On the second level were the puppeteers who were moving the real objects around on sticks through holes in the floor. Uh, and then on the bottom level was a video facility where Bob Z could stand and watch what was being filmed. And he had animators down there who were drawing on the screens so that he could see how the animation and the live action worked together. 
So anyway, it, we were in London. Bob Z went down to uh, the London North End where all the strip clubs are and hired a stripper. Brought her back to the studio and put her in Jessica's, basically Jessica's red dress and had her do the song and do the dance coming down the runways. And he filmed it so that the animators could see it. And then he sent her back, had her take the dress off and had her doing brawn panties, all right? So they could see how the body worked. Mm -hmm. Sent her back, had her do it naked, right? So three versions. And for weeks after that, you could go through the animation department and hear the guy saying, geez, I've been working so hard, so many late hours, I forgot what a woman looked like. Let's watch the Jessica thing. <laughs> 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 well, you spoke about it as far as timing. I think that's that's kind of the, the beauty of this film, and I'm sure Mike can speak on it, too. Oh, yeah. In, in the Disney lexicon, this was that movie that I think really um, was perfectly timed and came in at the perfect time as far as the technology, all of that, the reception of it all. Yeah, exactly, because um, there were techniques... When they started this movie, certainly in 1980 and even in 1985, there were techniques that they used in this movie that did not exist when they started the movie. Uh, there was a technique, uh, uh, Bette Midler and uh, another, a, 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 I can't remember the actress, but they did a movie as twins. And uh, uh, they, Lily Tomlin, that was Lily Tomlin. Tomlin. Yeah, Lily Tomlin. Yeah, they did a movie as twins and they invented a camera technique to make this happen that they later used in Roger Rabbit, but they used this technique in that movie. That movie was out for like two or three years before they finally finished Roger Rabbit. So the, the technology kept uh, kept advancing. And of course, um, Industrial Light and Magic, Lucas's organization, they came up with the technology that allowed them to do shadowing and shading so that two-dimensional characters could look like real three-dimensional characters. And the scene in the movie that is the most astounding scene in the movie, bar none, is the scene where Dolores, Eddie, and Roger are in the storeroom and Roger bumps the lamp. And the lamp swings back and forth, back and forth. And as the shadows and shading change, the shadows and shading on Roger change to match. And it's flawless and it's so flawless that now whenever animators do a really great animation scene they refer to that as bumping the lamp incredible uh, yeah it's incredible, incredible. It, is. it is really cutting edge um i think really just to give you know gary all the credit in the world just hearing straight from the horse's mouth about the genesis of this project and you know your inspirations I, I think that it's really important to talk about how your influences as you said came from film noir and mysteries and comic strips and whatnot i think it's so hard for people to grasp when they, they find their interests and their loves and then when they want to do something creative with it it's so hard for somebody to come up with something so woolly original like you did whereas a lot of people come up with something that's so derivative of their influences but what you did with roger rabbit is you created this genre blend and and there really isn't anything like it sure there's been things that have tried to do it you know you mentioned ralph bakshi earlier you know we saw that with cool world and you know more recently brian henson tried it with the happy time murders 
each to varying degrees of success or not so much success. So Roger Rabbit, is, <laughs> <laughs> Roger Rabbit really is, you know, a, a one of a kind, you know, from the source material to the film. I, I just think that it's an incredible feat. And I think the reason that it's in, you know, National Congress and the, the fact that we're here still talking about it is a testament to your creativity and your originality with it. So I, I think that it stands totally apart from so many Disney films from the golden age to, to right now. I mean, they're not even just from the technical standpoint, the performances, the fact that there's no film that combines Disney characters with other characters from other libraries together. It's it's really um, a one of a kind. So I just I just wanted to credit you for all oh, of that. You. I did have help. You know, <laughs> I, 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 there was a guy with a camera. You know, if I was going to do it today, I'd just use my cell phone and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, people always ask me, is there anything about the movie that you're disappointed with? You know, and I will tell you my one disappointment. My one disappointment, Bob Hoskins. It's not my disappointment, but Bob Hoskins <laughs> is the most incredible actor that I have ever seen in my life. I mean, mm -hmm. he would stand in a, a totally empty room with a green screen and he would make up everything in his mind. And, and act to that. And he, when he was acting, you could see it. You didn't even need to see the animation. You could see what he was doing. When he was handcuffed to Roger, and that's see when he's handcuffed to Roger, those handcuffs are on springs. And so Hoskins has to not only control his arm, he has to control the rabbit's arm. So however he does his arm, he has to remember that's where the rabbit is. Eye contact was extremely important. He had to look exactly where the rabbit's eyes were when he was talking to the rabbit. And the, the animators sometimes helped him out because sometimes he, he, he missed a little bit. He didn't miss often and he didn't miss much, but the animators could sometimes fudge it a little bit. If he didn't do eye contact, then people wouldn't believe that rabbit was real. When he was thrown out of the Ink and Paint Club by the gorilla, he was on a wire, of course, but at the end, they dropped him so that they could get the real boom. And when they dropped him, he broke three ribs. Wow. And we said, oh, boy, here goes our shooting schedule. You know, we're, we're, we're down for six months. He came in the next day, bandaged up, ready to go. He's just, just the, the enemy of, of, a, of a trooper. Uh, and he was a brilliant, brilliant actor. And my one disappointment with the movie is that Bob Hoskins did not get a single nomination for an Academy Award. Yeah. That. Yeah. And he should have Pretty won normal. that award hands down. I mean, that was the most phenomenal acting job I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely. And to what you were speaking about, that sequence in particular with the with the handcuff, a lot of that B-roll is uh, in existence in YouTube. So I really encourage anybody to check that out because, again, Bob's acting in the film is incredible, but it, it's just this technical ballet dance that he's doing before the cameras and at that time as you said this was an incredibly cutting edge film technologically speaking so for him to be hitting these marks hitting here hitting there while remaining in character which if people don't know bob hoskins was not american <laughs> so he's pulling off a, a, a fantastic accent whatnot you know real hard-boiled uh, raymond chandler type character if you will and it, it's incredible seeing that b-roll to what was on set to what we see it's remarkable really so I got to tell you about the premiere, all right? Please. <laughs> the movie was premiered at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, uh, June 22nd, 1988. And uh, they, they did it in New York City. So I, I live in Boston, so I wouldn't have to come to L.A. So, I, you know, I, 
uh, took the train to New York City and I'm sitting in the VIP section in the first balcony and it's really going to be the first time that I've seen the movie all the way through because they were still working on it too. Like right. two weeks before it came out. I mean, they were still tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. They didn't know up until probably a week before whether they were going to release it as a Walt Disney picture, which everybody wanted to do or as a touchstone picture because uh, it was going to be PG-13. Actually, it's not PG-13, it's PG. But Disney had never released anything but a G-rated movie. Right. And they really wanted to put the Disney stamp on this, but they couldn't. So I, I had never seen my credit because the credits weren't added the last time I saw it run through. So I, I'm sitting there in the VIP section. And on my left, I've got Kathleen Turner, who's the voice of my character and also the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah. On, my, on my right, I've got Amy Irving, who's also the voice of my character and maybe the second one. <laughs> and I'm going to see my movie all the way through. And I'm going to see my credit on screen for the first time. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. Yeah. And, and in by golly, life got better. Because Kathleen put her hand on my lap. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kathleen put her hand on my lap. <laughs> and she leaned over and she whispered in my ear, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> I think that, defi first thing. <laughs> that, de that defines surreal out-of-body experience. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, anyway, uh, the movie wound up being the top-grossing movie of 1988. Uh won four Academy Awards. I got to go to the Academy Awards ceremony uh, myself, where I sat close enough to share a smell of perfume. And uh, <laughs> the movie uh, the movie has just continued to be widely viewed and widely accepted and has become a, a classic. We certainly had the connection, as I certainly did, from that cable era, that VHS era, that discovery. And you spoke about it a little bit, Gary, before we actually jumped on about the fact that this is discovered over and over again. And it has that appeal for a, a different generation over and over again. It speaks to the imagination um, of that world. Yeah. You know, when it, when it came out, the people who could see it were the people who could see it in theaters because they didn't have VHS. And, mm -hmm. uh, they, this movie wasn't going to be on television. And the... Uh, the intention, Stephen's intention as producer, was to re-release it every seven years, just like Disney did with all their other animated films. And that's right. he was—he right. vowed he would never release this movie on VHS. Well, then he finally caved in and released ET on VHS and made a ton of money. And he said, "Well, okay." <laughs> so he, he released it on VHS, and uh, of course, when it was released on VHS got a whole new audience. I mean, the people who had seen it before saw it and they started using it as a babysitter. So kids started mm -hmm. seeing it and, and I would go to shows and my fan base kept getting older because of the older people who had saw it originally, but it also kept getting younger. And then when it came out on uh, LaserDisc and the DVD, same thing. And now it's on the Disney Channel and you know the whole world knows who it is. I mean, it, it, in China, I, I went to China couple of years ago and I lectured uh, at animation animation classes at various universities across China. China is getting into animation big way and they're very, very good at it. 2D traditional kind of animation. And uh, I would give my little talk and they all knew who Roger Rabbit and Roger Weber was. And whenever I mentioned Jessica, everybody laughed because the the translator always 
I, 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 I'm not even going to try the, the Chinese term for Jessica, but he always said a certain thing and everybody laughed. And I said, you know, why does everybody laugh when I say Jessica? And he said, well, in, in China, Jessica is referred to as big melons. <laughs> and I said, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> well, that makes that makes me the big melon man, you know. But uh, that's uh, that's excellent. There's the badge um, of honor. It really is, uh, Gary. I I'm just curious because you know we've been talking about a lot of the creative talent in this film: uh, Bob Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg. Um, you know, Bob Zemeckis, arguably the greatest protege uh, Spielberg ever had. I think, as you said, he's coming hot off the success of Back to the Future. Instead of resting on his laurels, you know, creating something that was so cutting edge and a real genre blend with that, he figured, no, let's do something that nobody else has ever done in between two Back to the Future sequels with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So I I'm curious, you know, what kind of uh, relationship did you guys have? in production uh you talking with steven and robert zemeckis like what kind of creative discussions were you guys having in throughout the production you know steven kind of stayed out of it bob c really kind of ran the show don Hahn was the producer a guy named bob watts was also a line producer sure i interfaced mostly with the animators because they were the ones coming up with the jokes i mean what zemeckis does is so far uh so far outside my pay grade that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just lost. But, I, you know, I can contribute a good couple of gags here and there. So I would work with the animators mostly. And, you know, that was my main contribution. I, I'm, I'm basically, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm a novelist. And people say, oh, wasn't it exciting hanging around movies and seeing the movie produced? It's really kind of boring when, when Judge Doom is trying to put on that glove, you know. He, he kept missing. He, he kept, you know, like, like this finger, this, these two fingers, or this finger, or this <laughs> finger. He, he, kept missing, yeah. he kept missing. Like 110 takes. And um, I, 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 I get bored with that kind of stuff. I, I, they treated me well. I, I had unlimited access to, to all the filming, all the sets. I, you know, a lot of it was filmed in London. A lot of it was filmed in L.A., and I would go to the set and, you know, watch until I got bored and then go do something else. Uh, the best part was they gave me a car driver in London. Wow. And yeah. And um, I, <laughs> idea, you know, this, I'm, a, I'm a farm boy. You know, I said, what, what, Throw the pinky what, out. What, what, do you, what do you do? And he says, well, I take you anywhere you want to go. And I said, oh, well, you know, if, if I want to go get a pizza, you take me to get a pizza. I said, of course. I said, all right, let's go to the carriage entrance at Harrods. He said, of course. So we drove up and we pulled up to the carriage entrance at Harrods. And I got out of the car. Of course, I got a doorman and I opened the door for me. I got out. My wife got out. And I said to my wife, you know, if, but my one big regret here is that nobody back in Earlville can see me pulling up in a Rolls Royce to the carriage entrance at Harrods. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 had a, I, I wrote the sequel novel. Who plugged Roger Rabbit? Disney bought the rights to that for a movie. Uh, who knows? I wrote the third Roger Rabbit novel, Who Whacked Roger Rabbit. And I just finished my, my pandemic book, is called Jessica Rabbit Serious Business. And it's uh, serious with an X. Love it. And it's a, an origin story. It talks about where Jessica came from, how she became, how she uh, started out as just a poor, simple working girl and later became Jessica Rabbit. Uh, how she met Roger and uh, how Toontown came to be. 
Uh, that's my pandemic book. Amazing. Wow. And, you know, right now I'm working on uh, another Eddie Valiant novel. I, you know, my novels after Who Censored Roger Rabbit were Roger novels. And I want to go back to Who Censored, which was really an Eddie Valiant novel. I want to do another Eddie Valiant novel. So this one is going to be more of a hard-boiled private eye novel, although still set in, uh, in Toontown. Yeah. That's incredible. I had one, um, because we were talking about so many different characters being involved on this, and you've kind of covered so much territory, stuff that, you know, we've heard before, had never heard before, so I'm going to try and one-up you a little bit, if I can. <laughs> there is a you little... Know, I, you know, I do lie for a living, and I'm very, very good at it. So... <laughs> there was... um. An interview friend of mine, an interviewer friend of mine named Bobby Rivers, who had interviewed countless subjects throughout the years, like Kirk Douglas and whatnot, and towards the end of his life, he interviewed Mel Blanc, and as we know, Spielberg was very integral in getting all these different studios and allowing all these characters to be in it. Um, at the time, as they were working through the production, th obviously they wanted Mel Blanc to reprise his role of Bugs Bunny, because he originated the role, and I believe it was somebody from Spielberg's production office reached out to Mel and expressed to him that they wanted him to come into audition, to which that did not sit too well with Mel Blanc. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he, apparently, he, he apparently was fuming, wondering who this Spielberg person was, because he originated the Bugs Bunny voice, making a huge deal about it, and then I think it was only a matter of a few hours later where a representative from Spielberg's company said, Mr. Blank, you've been cast in the film. <laughs> well... That's a, that's a story I've never heard before, and I can say categorically, that wasn't me. <laughs> uh, after the movie came out, I did a, uh, a talk show with Mel Blanc. He, uh, he was pretty sick by then and yeah. uh, just came in by, by phone. But uh, just a great guy. And I, I mean, I was just beside myself to, you know, be talking in, in the same atmosphere as, as Mel Blanc. And um, he had nothing but good things to say about the movie and about the characters. Um, That's wonderful. So I, I, I can't, it must have been one of the younger, younger production assistants. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not have been wanted to be the person to have made that phone you know, somebody, call. Somebody who grew up on, uh, I don't know, The Simpsons or something who had yeah. never heard. I do also have to ask you too, because this is this is very rare indeed to be associated with not only a Disney film and a, a beloved uh, Disney film, but you you have a distinction of uh, within the Disney parks, with the Disney parks you know popping up all over the world and things attractions changing. How does it feel to know that Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin still exists in Disneyland? That was one of my greatest pleasures to ride that uh, at their 60th anniversary, knowing. That was my first time there too, riding through it. I was in, I could not believe that this ride was still there and I got to enjoy it and it's still running today. So how does that make you feel? Um, I was there when, uh, I was there when they conceived uh, Toontown. They called it Mickey's Toontown. It should be called Roger's Toontown. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I was there when they conceived that. And a couple of things I'll point out. There are no right angles in Mickey's Toontown. There are no there are no right angles. Everything meets at a curve or anything, and there are hidden gags all throughout Mickey's Toontown. If you go into the post office, you'll see mailboxes for Mickey, Goofy, Donald, Roger, Jessica, and if you turn the dial on that mailbox, it'll talk to you. Uh, there's a manhole in Mickey's Toontown, a manhole cover in Mickey's Toontown, 
And if you stand on one corner of it, you can hear the weasels underneath of the sewers plotting how they're going to kidnap Jessica. Yep. Uh, and the whole, the whole park is like that. And what, the first time I went, I, I went the day before it opened. They gave me a little tour. And then I went to the grand opening. Um, but it was like walking through my own imagination. Right. It was like somebody had, had, you know, opened up my head and taken this out and put it there. And I was just blown away by it. And then they walked me into Minnie's house. Mm-hmm. And when you walk into Minnie's house, as you walk through, as you're, as you're just about to leave Minnie's house, there's an easy chair. And draped over the arm of the easy chair is a, is a magazine called uh, Jessica's Secret, which is kind of a play on Victoria's Secret. And it's Jessica on the cover wearing a negligee, all right? <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is pretty hot for, for Disney theme park. But as you leave, if you turn around and look behind you, you'll see Minnie's bookcase. And she's got all her books on her bookcase. And if you look, you'll see a copy of my book. Oh, beautiful. It's <laughs> just surreal. Yeah. And, Such a surreal, blessed experience. You know, I, I mean, I, I think who would have thought that you know, a simple kid from, from a farm town in Illinois would develop characters that have become cultural icons. I mean, yeah. They will be around, they will outlive me, they will be around forever. And the movie, uh, they, I, I watch the movie periodically with friends and, you know, for whatever. I would, I would come to your drive-in and watch it if I could. Um, and the movie, the movie holds up incredibly well. You could oh, watch yeah. it today. And it's not the least oh, yeah. updated. It still holds up. Yeah, it, so, it's only gotten better with age. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, just because you touched on the fact that it is a cultural icon and it, it does continue to get better with age, um, <laughs> understandably, the idea of a sequel popped up, you know, almost as soon as the original film came out. And news of it, you know, keeps getting recycled throughout the years. Um, I think up until a few years ago, Zemeckis and the original screenwriters were tinkering with it. But of course, uh, we lost Bob Hoskins a couple of years back. Um, you have to wonder, you know, with Disney Plus uh, being here with the streaming wars, is there any chance that Disney might revive Roger Rabbit? Because I think the world could use them. I've been asked this question many times. Uh, the The road to the sequel is is as roller coastery as the road to the original. You know, the the 1980 to 1985 years. Mm-hmm. Now we've got the 1988 to 2021 years. Um, and I will tell you. A couple of things. First of all, uh, the, the movie has grossed a billion and a half dollars. Uh, and that's, that's you know, jump change, jump change in Hollywood. Not. I mean, <laughs> the rule of thumb is that a sequel movie will make three quarters of the amount of money that the original movie made. The the movie, whenever they whenever they query moviegoers on what movie they would most like to see a sequel made. Uh, for years and years, there were two at the top. One was Pretty Woman and one was Roger Rabbit. Uh, Pretty Woman is pretty well dropped off the charts, but whenever people say, hey, you know, what would you like to see a sequel movie made to? Roger Rabbit is still number one. And um, it's, you know, it's money driven, partially. Uh, Partially it's creatively driven. Pixar has come in and kind of now controls the Disney animation process. You don't have a Jeffrey Katzenberg 
who controlled both animation and live action and could kind of marry the two. But in Hollywood, money always will out. And so I'll tell you what I've been telling people all along. Stay tuned. Because. Right, uh, baby. In your opinion, uh, you know, just if, if you had carte blanche, if you will, would you like to see Roger continue in a more period setting? Or do you envision, you know, something more contemporary where Roger's interacting with Woody and Buzz, perhaps, or Elsa from Frozen? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm an old school guy and I kind of like the old school look. Uh, but yeah, I think in, in one of my dedications in the second or third novel, I said, I am the almighty grand omnipotent poobah of Toontown and I make the rules and I kind of play fast and loose with those rules. And uh, sometimes I will set them in the forties and sometimes I'll set them in the seventies. Sometimes I'll set them in the eighties. And so I don't know, it, it, it's going to depend on what makes a good story. Mm -hmm. And on, on, it's going to depend on basically on the story. And I think, I think that the characters are timeless. And if you look at the characters as actors, you know, maybe they are, maybe they are contemporary. And maybe Roger Rabbit was them acting in a period movie. Mm -hmm. you know? that, yeah. would make, that would make sense in the universe. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm not as, concerned with maintaining the integrity of the universe as maybe a lot of fans would like me to be. I, I mean, I like to tell a good story. And if by telling that good story, I have to set them in the 80s, I'll set them in the 80s. And if That's I right. have to set them in modern times, I'll set them in modern times. I don't, I don't really like the idea of uh, Roger and Jessica and Baby Hermit interacting with characters like Buzz and, and, you know, some of the modern characters, because I think that the Roger Rabbit characters are charming. Yeah. I think they've got a certain period charm to them. And I think a lot of the modern characters lose that. Sure. But, but again, you know, it's going to depend on the story. Well, we certainly have had an amazing time talking to you. I want to make sure that you let people know where they can find the books, where they can follow you, all that good stuff. All right, so uh, you can follow me at www.garywolf.com, uh, my website. And uh, I, actually, there's a there's a new uh, audio version of Who Censored Roger Rabbit that's out right now, mm -hmm. uh, which is a vast improvement over the way I used to do it, which is that people used to call me up and I would read them. <laughs> um, you can also buy uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, plugged Roger Rabbit. Uh, I've got a book of short stories called The Road to Toontown, which has some Roger Rabbit stories in it and shows you kind of how I got from there to here. And uh, just signed a contract uh, exclusive here to uh, to the drive-in movie channel. I just signed a contract uh, with a Russian company so that who, whacked, who censored Roger Rabbit will be available in Russian. Amazing. Uh, for those of you. Amazing. Uh, you don't want to go that route. And I just signed a contract with uh, the audio company who did uh, who censored Roger Rabbit for audiobooks on who plugged Roger Rabbit and who whacked Roger Rabbit. So yeah, it's looking good. Yeah. Wow. But I, www.garywolf.com. And I have to tell you one more movie story. Yeah, yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> closing movie story. So when they were making a movie, 
uh, you know, Steve Spielberg was kind of out in charge of getting all the other studios characters. And he wanted to make sure that everybody who was involved in the movie in a, in a major way had his or her favorite characters. So Bob Hoskins was Heckle and Jekyll. So, you know, and Stephen got Heckle and Jekyll. Bob Z's were, were uh, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. And that was a problem because they were 1946 characters and this was a 1945 movie, but uh, you know, movie magic, they're, they're still in there. So Steve came to me. I said, Gary, you know, what, what characters should I get for you? And I said, oh, Steve, you know, I, I got Roger, I got Jessica, I got Baby Urban, I think I'm covered. And he said, oh, well, okay. I mean, he heard all my stories by then. And he said, oh, okay, well, I'll find something. I'll find something. So when you're watching the movie, when Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown, he goes through the Toontown tunnel and the curtains part. And all of a sudden, there's everybody's happy and singing and gay. If you look to the left, it's only there for like three cells. If you look to the left, you're going to see a yellow farmhouse, a red barn, a green meadow, and a blue cow out in the middle of a field. You, <laughs> come on. You're such a storyteller. You brought it full circle, full circle, this whole entire thing. Well played, sir. Well, I'll tell you, I always have this vision when we first started doing this and getting guests for uh, specific shows and events that we're doing, that when people travel in and they travel distances to get to us, especially when it's something as rare as uh, this on 35 millimeter, that they'll listen to this on the way in or the way back home and get kind of that, again, deeper dive, deeper appreciation of the film we grew up loving. But guys, did you ever think in life as you're watching Roger Rabbit falling in love with it um, at any age, we'd be sitting here with the man himself who's responsible no. for it? It's just... <laughs> So many pinch me moments in this magic. Well, like I, like I say, I, I said this before, and I'll say it again. I did have help, so you know, I did, they didn't do it alone. <laughs> anyway, thanks, it's guys. I had, I had a really good time. Yeah, this made this made my week for sure. Thank you so right. much, Gary. I hope I, I hope you sold a lot of popcorn, and uh, yeah, I hope I did. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Take care, guys. You too. Cheers. Well, that was a treat. Um, I always love getting together with you, Mark. But I think you really elevated this game in a big, bad way, Mike. (laughs) I'm trying. You know, I'm really trying. I mean, like Gary, you know, what an incredible storyteller he was just kind of giving us the behind the scenes, the evolution of the story and, you know, his creativity, you know, just just a complete 100% original. And we're thankful to see that that originality morphed into an iconic, unforgettable film like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So I can't wait, uh, you know, to experience it on the Mahoning screen with that Mahoning crowd. Uh, It's going to be incredible. And for more That's uh, right, baby. hot you mic on the mic action, be sure to check out the I Eat Movies podcast that Mike does with our good friend Dino, which is yeah. honestly between you and me. And it's not just because I know you. It's like one of the better movie podcasts I've heard. So I encourage folks to listen to that. Thank you so much, man. I, I know I know that's uh, what we talk about on I Eat Movies is definitely a, a bit different than my um, love for Disney. But, uh, you know, there's a, I'm like an onion. There's many layers to me. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's a pleasure doing that show. And I'm so happy that you guys have brought me into the fold to 
uh, share my love for Disney, sharing it with the Mahoning audience and stuff. Uh, I know that with what we're doing, uh, you know, Dark Side of Disney, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, this is clearly just the tip of the iceberg as we excavate uh, the vaults of, uh, you know, the Disney treasure. So it's going to be a great season. We have so many things and I, I hope that I can kind of uh, enlighten people on these films and the history and the makings that went into them because every film has a different story, fascinating story. So I, I can't wait to get into all of it. I absolutely love it. You know, I have to tell a little backstory. You've been coming to the lot pretty much since the beginning. What was your first show with us? My first show was night two of the first John Carpenter weekend. That was uh, Big Trouble Come in Little on. China. Yeah, Big Trouble in Little China, the mm -hmm. thing. And then the secret show, which was The Fog, which it's sort of an infamous Mahoning story now where right when that film started, a fog rolled in, but it just so subtly stopped at the edges of the screen. So we were all engulfed in fog. I mean, what better first experience? <laughs> so yeah, from Fix your heart. <laughs> From that point, I've been steadily hooked and being a big Disney fan, obviously, if I'm not at the Mahoning, it stands to reason that my wife and I are in Disney World or something. That's one of the rare reasons that I probably oh, yeah. won't be at Mahoning. I'm in Disney, so. Right. Well, the reason I always love seeing you on the lot is, and, and what kind of sparked this whole thing of community for me and the connection we were making is, you know, that discussion that people have after films, after things screen, you're always the best for me to kind of get that additional insight. And I say Mark is too, because he's, he's very much encyclopedia in that way. But sure. it's it's really nice to see that that, you know, has kind of spread across the whole entire lot where that intermission time, I always say is my favorite time because everybody can get out and express their feelings for these films and what brought them to the theater and all that. So it's just great to uh, to see the fact that like that, that had to have been 2016. So here we are five years later, bringing the creativity together and meeting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the legend. I mean it's crazy. It, it is crazy. And I mean, you know, th this is all credit to you guys, really. I mean, it's the atmosphere and the culture that you guys have cultivated at the Mahoning. It, it's just incredible. I mean, it, I've you guys and everybody else i've met some of the best friends of my life there because it's it's not only the great programming it's the people that run the show and it, it's it's the great hang that's the great hang seeing people from different state lines coming together to this incredible cinematic wonderland that we come to to talk about films to share these you know these 35 millimeter experiences that you can't find on any screen anywhere so yeah it, it really is the great escape especially in in these pandemic times and stuff so it's incredible anybody that doesn't know about the mahoning they gotta come out they gotta see these things and experience and be a part of this oh yeah and if you guys have not gotten your tickets yet mahoningtit.com uh we hope to see you there for obviously who framed roger rabbit um and many many more shows coming up so for myself, for Mark, for Mike, we will all be back very soon together. This is Virgil signing off from Mahoning Drive-In Radio. And on that note, Jeff, take it away, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for coming out tonight to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. We hope you'll come back and see us again real soon. The exit is on the right-hand side of the screen at the front of the field. And most importantly, have a very safe trip home. Good night and God bless you.